And as you do that, I want to tell you the story. Uh, in 1983, that was a long time ago. How many of y'all remember 1983? Yeah, hairstyles, clothing, all that was great. It was really rad back then, wasn't it? 1983. Well, Australia hosted what was called the Ultra Marathon. Now, Australia's Ultra Marathon is a 573.7-mile foot race from Sydney to Melbourne. And this race is the race that they measure in how many days it takes you to complete, right? Professionals from all over the world would come to participate in these races. Well, shortly in 1983, right before that race began, a 61-year-old farmer named Cliff Young, wearing overalls and galoshes over his boots, walked up to the registration table and asked for a number so he could run in the race. He said, I'm Cliff Young. I'm from a large ranch where we run sheep outside of Melbourne. And they asked, are you, are you serious? Are you really going to run this race? He said, yeah. Do you have any backers? He said, no. He said, well, you can't run. And Cliff shot back and said this. He said, yeah, I can. You see, I grew up on a farm where we couldn't afford horses or four-wheel drives. And the whole time I was growing up, until about four years ago when we finally made some money and got a four-wheeler, Whenever the storms would roll in, I'd have to go out and round up the sheep. We had 2,000 head on 2,000 acres. Sometimes I'd have to run those sheep for two or three days. It took a long time, but I'd catch them. So, yes, I believe I can run this race. It's only two more days. Five days. I've run sheep for three. Well, all the other professional runners, right, who were all decked out and they're running regalia and had their backers, their corporate backers emblazoned, uh, on their on their uniform, they looked at him like he was crazy, and the crowd snickered because you know all these professional runners had these sculpted bodies, these beautiful strides, but not Cliff. His only training was a lifetime of rounding up sheep and cab, sheep and cattle on that expansive farm in the outback. But as the days of the race went by, the laughter in those crowds soon turned into cheers. Go, Cliff, go! Go, Cliffy! They were so enamored by him. And a few days into that race, that 61-year-old sheep farmer had caught the attention of the whole world. So five days, 14 hours, and four minutes later, at 1.25 in the morning, Cliff Young came shuffling across the finish line with that awkward gait of his. He had won the 573.7-mile ultramarathon, and he didn't, matter, he didn't win it by a matter of minutes or hours. The second-place runner, well, second runner was nine hours and 56 minutes behind him. Cliff had set a new world record for the ultramarathon. Now, the press mobbed him. They wanted to know what kind of gear he used, what kind of shoes he ran in, you know, how, what did he survive on, which was pumpkin seeds and water. And then they discovered the secret to his success. Cliff had shuffled his way to victory with hardly any sleep. See, the other runners, they'd run for 16 to 18 hours straight. They'd stop and sleep for four to six hours every night. But Cliff didn't know that's what he was supposed to do. Instead, when he got too sleepy to run, he'd stop and sleep for a couple of hours, get right back up, and keep on going. He endured running five days, 14 hours, and four minutes at the age of 61 by running through the dark when everyone else would stop to put up their feet. Cliff didn't have any backers, except for the backing of his belief that he could win the race. And he won that race by running through the dark, 
by persevering till the end, no matter how hot, hungry, sore, or tired he got. The Christians in ancient Philadelphia had that same endurance, that same determination. They had that same faith and their one and only backer, the Lord Jesus Christ. They ran the race for lost souls and they endured through some long, dark nights. But Christ promised them certain victory and a special honor for their perseverance. So let's read what Jesus had to say to this church, beginning in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will come and take your crown. Him who overcomes, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father God, we pray that you would give us the ears to hear what your Spirit says to our church today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first part of this letter, as always, is the characteristics that Jesus points out about himself. And to the church in Philadelphia, he points out three characteristics. The first is that he is the holy God. By calling himself the holy and true one, Jesus is declaring he is God. The holy and true one, that's something that's only reserved in the, in the Bible to talk about God. And he is holy in his character, his words, his actions, his purpose. And that word holy means to be set apart as unique. It means that Jesus is one of a kind. He's the genuine article. He is, he is set apart as unique from us. No one and nothing can compare with Jesus Christ. He is the holy God. But secondly, he says that he is the true God. Now, Philadelphia, you have to understand, Philadelphia was known as the Little Athens because they had so many temples to the Greek and Roman gods, it was, it was almost like being in Athens, Greece. And so they had all these temples to all these gods and goddesses. So what Jesus is telling them here is He's saying that I am the true God. I'm not a copy. I'm not one of many gods. I'm the authentic, genuine Creator God, the one and only. Basically, Jesus is affirming for these Christians who are living in this pagan culture with a pantheon of gods and a variety of beliefs and worldviews, He's affirming for them that He is the one true living God. He's not one of many options. He's the one and only option. If you're interested in what is true, real, and right, you need to be reminded of that truth today. Jesus is not just something we tack on. Jesus is not just one of many alternative lifestyles. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one and true God. Amen? And because Jesus is the holy and true God, He alone is the keeper of the keys. Now, this is a reference to a story 
You have to go all the way back in the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 22, where a man named Eliakim was appointed as high priest for Israel after uh, they had had a wicked priest that had to be uh, denounced and, and replaced. He had abused his authority. And so God, when he in, installs Eliakim as the high priest, God says this in Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. He said, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. So obviously Jesus is quoting from this. He's referring directly to this story. Because Eliakim was meant to foreshadow the future Messiah. His life pointed people to Jesus, who proved himself to be an even better Eliakim. He is the holy, perfect priest, the only one that can really stand between a holy God and sinful man, because he was man, but he was perfect, and he was also God 100%. And that is why Jesus is described here as holding the key of David. Now, earlier in Revelation 1.18, Jesus said of himself that he holds the keys of death and Hades. So when you take these and you put them together, Jesus, the holy and true God, alone is the steward of God's saving grace. He alone has the authority to open or close the door into God's kingdom and to heaven for anyone. Jesus. He's the only one. Now, what this means is that God, and this is beautiful, God has an open-door policy for salvation. He has an open-door policy for entrance into His kingdom. Being the one who holds the keys, who alone can open and shut the doors that no one else can shut or open. This gives Jesus a unique authority and an unqualified power. It's what He was referring to in John 14, 6, when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Why is that? Because He holds the keys. He's the one who can open and shut that door. Now, most people in our culture today balk at this verse. Because it goes against the grain of our culture's idea of tolerance and inclusiveness, right? And a lot of Christians today are embarrassed by the exclusivity of the claims of Christ. In fact, Barna Research Group just released some new findings of a study they did to better understand what Christian millennials believe about the gospel and about sharing their faith. This just came out a week or so ago. The vast majority of millennial-aged Christians agreed with statements like this. The best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know Jesus. They agreed with that. We would agree with that, right? Or the statement, I know how to respond when someone raises questions about faith. That's good. But then things took a really strange turn when they were asked about actually sharing their faith. Almost half of millennials, 47%, agree at least somewhat that it is, quote, wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share your faith. Almost half of millennial Christians said that was wrong. That statistic makes millennials the most evangelism-averse generation on record. Now, the project director of this research reflected on the study. Here's what he said. He said, Cultivating deep, steady, resilient Christian conviction is difficult in a world of you do you and don't criticize anyone's life choices and emotivism 
the feelings first priority that our culture makes a way of life. As much as ever, evangelism isn't just about saving the unsaved, but reminding ourselves that this stuff matters. That the Bible is trustworthy and that Jesus changes everything. Think about how... Think about the disconnect in saying that the best thing that can ever happen to your life is to know Jesus and then saying, but it's wrong to try to share Jesus with somebody. See, the beauty of the gospel is that the open door policy of God the Father offered through God the Son is a clarion call to all people to be saved. Yes, the gospel is exclusive. Because it says that Jesus is the only way to the Father. He's the one who holds the keys. He's the one who opens the door to heaven. But the gospel is also amazingly inclusive because it says, whosoever will may come. Right? Think of it this way. Do you know what the most exclusive club in the world is? There's a club in the world. It's the most exclusive club in the world. In fact, it only has five members. Five living members. And the only way you can get in this club is to be elected and serve as President of the United States. That's a pretty exclusive club, isn't it? You want to know what the most inclusive club is in the world? It's Christianity. Because it's open to anyone and everyone. Because to be a Christian, all you have to do is to be a lost sinner found by Jesus Christ. That's it. It doesn't matter what color your skin. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what nation nation you're a citizen of. It doesn't matter how much money you make, what your career is. It doesn't matter how old you are or how strong you are or how thin you are. It doesn't matter. You can be a Christian. You can go through that open door into the presence of God. That's who Jesus is. He's the one true holy God who holds the keys to heaven. Now, once Jesus has established His identity, He then moves to complement this church in Philadelphia. And He offers a couple of compliments. Now, this is one of the two churches in these seven churches that Jesus gives no criticism for. No criticism whatsoever. And that doesn't mean they're perfect, but what it means is that they have a posture of obedience and trust. And so Jesus... He acknowledges, as He gives them these compliments, He also acknowledges a couple of obstacles they face, a couple of challenges. So for each of these compliments, there's a challenge that's attached to it. The first one is that they kept His Word, there's the compliment, they kept His Word in their weakness. That's the challenge, the obstacle. Jesus, when He, talks about, when he says that they kept His Word, Jesus isn't saying that they kept all of His commands. He's not talking about keeping His commands. He's talking about that they've kept their confession of faith in the Gospel. In other words, unlike the church in Sardis, remember last week we looked at the church in Sardis and how they were so milquetoast in their witness that they were neither desirous for people to join the church nor that were they so dangerous that people opposed them, right? All right, They were just sort of a respectable church, just kind of vanilla, just bland. They, they, they weren't compelled to share their witness. Unlike the church in Sardis, the church in Philadelphia was vocal in their witness. They were unashamed of the gospel. And this church was able to do that. They were able to keep His Word despite their weakness. Now that made me think of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12. When God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
So Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What a different way of thinking about that. It's not the size or strength of a church that determines its ministry, but it's faith in the call and commands of God. In fact, Paul is saying that's when we're, that when we're the weakest, that's when God is the most glorified in us. When we're the weakest, that's when we're the strongest. So if you're sitting there and you're thinking, you know what, I'm just not, I could never teach Sunday school. I'm not qualified to be a Sunday school teacher. Or you hear these announcements about driving the bus to Raysville or working in the nursery or helping with children's church, and you think, I'm just not very good with children. I can't keep up with kids. Or maybe when it's time for, for deacon nominations and elections, you think, you know, I'm just not good enough of a Christian really to be a deacon. I don't have my act all together yet. Or you hear this beautiful choir sing, and you think, man, I just can't sing that good. I I could never be in the choir. When you start thinking that way, just remember that we should delight in our weaknesses, for that is when Jesus will make us strong. He doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. He will give us the strength. He will give you the wisdom. He will give you the strength that you need. Remember Cliff Young? Out there in his galoshes and his overalls? 61 years old, yet he was persistent and he won that race, beating out all those professionals. God's not interested in calling professionals. He wants to call those who are willing and ready to trust Him. The Philadelphia church may have been a weak church, but they were a faithful church. They kept His Word. They were unafraid to bear witness to His name. And that's the second compliment and challenge pair that Jesus gives. They honored His name while others dishonored theirs. They honored, they kept His Word and they honored His name. They kept their confession of faith in the gospel of Christ. They were unashamed of the name of Jesus, which Paul says is an offense to unbelievers. Let's go back to to 1 Corinthians, the, the passage we heard this morning. When Paul said, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. Let's not be like the church in Sardis. Let's not be the kind of church that is just a respectable church, that is just a church that's just kind of keeping the status quo, just kind of doing what they have always done, but there's no fire, there's no urgency for the lost. Let's be like the church in Philadelphia who was so vocal in their witness, so proud of the gospel in Jesus' name that they stirred up all kinds of opposition. They stirred up, they agitated the local Jewish community. And these local Jews were opposing the Philadelphia church by spreading lies about them. Kind of similar to the treatment that the church in Smyrna was receiving. You see, tensions between Jews and and Christians were high in the first century. If you were a Gentile who became a Christian, well, you were persecuted by the Jews because they saw you as an outsider trying to join a club that you weren't welcome in. Jewish believers, on the other hand, were persecuted 
because they were seen as selling out their faith to a false religion and a perversion of Judaism. So yeah, the Jews were opposing the church in Philadelphia. But you know what? The Jews weren't the real opposition of the Philadelphia church. They weren't the enemy. You want to know who really was opposing that church? You want to know who the real enemy is? Satan. It's the devil. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And it is so important for us to remember today when popular culture seems to just, to, 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 to just take the name of Jesus through the mud, when they try to make us out to be bigots and haters and backward and science deniers, it isn't that combative atheist friend on Facebook who's your enemy. It's not the person who's trying to sue the school system to get prayer out that's the enemy. The enemy is the devil. We need to keep that in our minds. But here's the good news. When Satan places obstacles in our path, God can just turn them into opportunities. That's what God does. He takes obstacles and He turns them into open doors. Think about the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, one of the the twelve sons of Jacob? And Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. And and eventually he rose to be the second in command of all Egypt. And he was managing all these food stores because there was a famine in the land. Well, finally his brothers come to Egypt to get some food. And lo and behold, there's Joseph. Now, they don't recognize him at first, but eventually Joseph reveals himself to them and they're stricken with fear. They think, oh no, (laughs) what are we going to do? He's going to have us killed. He's going to have us throw in prison. He's going, to, he's going to exact his revenge on us. But listen to Joseph's faith. Listen to his hopeful perspective. In Genesis 50, 20, Joseph said, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph said, You, you, you tried to put an obstacle before me. But God took that jail cell, God took those slave chains, and He turned them into an open door that I could save your life. May we be so wise and faith-filled that we would have that same perspective, that we would see past the obstacles and to the opportunities that God God gives us. Paul had the same attitude when he was going to stay in Ephesus despite the opposition that he faced. He writes about this in 1 Corinthians 16, 9. He says, Because a great door for effective work has opened to me, but there are many who oppose me. Paul acknowledged that there were obstacles, but that God had used those obstacles to open a door. And we can choose to either focus on the obstacles out of unbelief, or we can focus in faith on open doors for the effective work that God has given us to do. And since Jesus holds the keys... Since He's the one who opens the doors, He's in control of the outcome, isn't He? So why should we be afraid or timid? Why should we fear what anyone will say or do to us? Why should we be afraid of not having the right answer or not knowing what to say? Why should we be afraid even of failure? If Jesus holds the keys, if He opens a door that no one can shut, no one and nothing can close the door of opportunity as long as Christ keeps it open. Fear 
unbelief, delay have caused many churches to miss God-given opportunities. May First Baptist Thompson not be among them. Amen? The Philadelphia believers endured special testing and they were found faithful. So Christ didn't have any criticism to correct them for, but He did give them an encouraging command. He gave them one command and that was hold on to what you have. Just hold on to what you've got. Now what did Jesus mean by that? What is it that they have that He wants them to hold on to? Well, it's the very thing Jesus just complimented them for. Hold on to My Word. Hold on to the boldness you have for My name. It ties directly to this open door that no one can shut. In other words, this church had a vision to reach those who were far from God because they loved God and they loved people. And Jesus opens the door for any Christian, any church that is so driven by love to make disciples. I'll guarantee you this, if we are driven by our love for God and our love for people to go into this community for the purpose of reaching the lost and making disciples, that is something God can and will bless. He will provide and He will open doors. Open doors throughout the New Testament often refer to that. They refer to opportunities to share the gospel. For example, in Acts 14, 27, Luke writes, On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And Paul in Colossians 4, 3 asks for prayer. He says, Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Think about that. Here Paul is in chains and he's praying for an open door, not to get free, not to clear his name, but to proclaim the gospel. Christ is the Lord of the church. He's the head of the church. He's the master of the harvest. He's the one who determines where and when his people will serve him. So if Jesus gives an open door, he will see to it that we can walk through it and we can do the work that he has called us to do. Just think for a minute about the open doors that Jesus has given our church. Think about the open doors that Jesus has given you. Think about it. What are your spheres of influence? Okay, your spheres of influence start at home, don't they? They start at home with your family. Your next sphere of influence, be your friends. And then your co-workers or your classmates, young people. That's a sphere of influence you have. And then it's your neighbors. And then it's other people in the community. Jesus has given you spheres of influence. How are you leveraging them for the gospel? Because with each of those groups, you have a voice. You have a platform. You can build trust with people. You can meet their needs with loving concern. You can develop relationships and you can look for God to open a door for you to have a gospel conversation with someone. The question is, will you be faithful? Will you hold on to what you have and fulfill the great commission to make disciples of those to whom God sends you? Will you walk through the doors that Jesus opens for you? Because if we do, Jesus has some promises for us, just as He did the church in Philadelphia. Two promises that Jesus gives. Two commitments. The first, or three, I'm sorry, three. The first, He says, God will deal with your enemies. God will deal with your enemies. Now, this is an interesting passage where He talks about He will make the Jews, He said, I'll make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I've loved you. 
Jesus here is alluding to an Old Testament teaching that says that someday in the Messianic age, all the Gentiles will come and bow at the feet of the Jews. But here Jesus puts a different twist on it. Jesus says that it would be the ethnically Jewish people who had rejected Him. They're the ones who would bow down at the feet of Christians regardless of your ethnicity. doesn't matter whether you're a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian. Jesus says it is a lost world who will come about at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Jesus even quotes part of Isaiah 60, 14 here when He says, All who despise you will bow down at your feet. And it calls to mind what Paul said about when Jesus comes back in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, someday, every person who has, who has, who has defamed us, every person who has mocked us, every person who has rejected the gospel, someday they will all have to acknowledge that we were right, the Bible is the truth, and Jesus Christ is Lord. That day is coming. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it doesn't matter what people may say or do when we're faithful to Jesus' word and name. Know that someday He will reveal Himself to them. Secondly, He promises to protect them from tribulation. Now, some scholars interpret this to talk about the great tribulation at the end of time. And others say that, no, Jesus is just referring to the imminent Roman Empire-wide persecution that's about to come. Some bad persecution is about to come uh, shortly after John wrote this. Either way, it doesn't really matter. It could be both. The point, the principle for us today is that when we are faithful to God, God will be faithful to us. And while we may suffer ridicule and persecution from those around us, and maybe even from our government, God will protect us from demonic forces, and He will preserve His church and the gospel until Jesus Christ returns. God will deal with our enemies. God will protect us from tribulation. And third, God will honor our commitment. Now, here at the end of this, he talks about him who overcomes. I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. Now, what you have to understand is that Philadelphia, Sardis, and about ten other uh, cities in this region of Asia Minor were in an earthquake-prone region. And in fact, in A.D. 17, an earthquake practically destroyed Philadelphia. All those temples, to all those gods and goddesses in Athens, all those pillars, they came tumbling down. And people had to move out of the city. And they lived out in the countryside while the city was rebuilt. This would have been fresh on their minds when John wrote this. So what God is saying, what Jesus is saying to them, is when it feels like your world is crumbling down, when it feels like you can't even trust the ground underneath your feet, my God will make you as stable as a pillar. And you won't ever have to leave. You won't have to go running out into the city because it's... It comes tumbling down. What he's saying is that the kingdom of God will never be shaken and it will never be destroyed. We can stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pillars also call to mind the way that ancient uh, cities would honor their heroes. They would erect pillars and put their name on it. And, and, and they would be in these temples. Well, Revelation later tells us that in the New Jerusalem there will be no physical temple. So the pillars of God's temple... Are you and me? It's His faithful people. And His name 
and our name and the name of the new Jerusalem will be written on us because we've been bought with the price. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Him. Like Philadelphia, God has opened a lot of doors of opportunity before us, First Baptist Church. And no matter what obstacles Satan may place in our way, if we trust God, if we're faithful, He will even take those obstacles and turn them into open doors. But we must walk through those open doors and do the work. Just like Cliff Young, God has set a race before us to run. Now, you may feel like an awkward sheep farmer from Australia shuffling along in overalls and galoshes. But if you do, just remember that if we have the backing of our belief in Christ, His strength will be magnified in our weakness. We can run the race and we can finish it. This morning, Jesus Christ is opening a door for you. A door of faith for you to walk through. Somebody in this room needs to walk through that door of faith and take the hand of Jesus and be saved. He's opening for you a door of salvation. Look, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. Jesus Christ opens that door and says, If you but come to me in faith and trust, if you confess your sins and ask me to forgive you, I'll do it. And I will welcome you in with open arms. Maybe this morning you need to come and accept that invitation. Give your life to Jesus today. For some of you, the door that is open is the door to join this church. You've been worshiping with us and fellowshipping with us, and you know this is, this is home for you. This is where God wants you to run that race. Well, the door stands open for you to come this morning and unite with this church family. But I'm going to tell you this too. As our instrumentalists come and we prepare for our invitation, Jesus opens a door for every single one of us in this room to go into this community and to share the gospel with somebody who's lost. Will you walk through that door? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace that knows no bounds. Thank you for your mercy that doesn't treat us as we deserve. Thank you, Jesus, for opening the door for us to come to the Father, to be forgiven and to start a new and fresh life. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone in this room that needs to do that, that nothing would stand in their way. God, remove any obstacle in their path and help them to come and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I pray you'd remove any obstacles that people may feel about uniting with this church family, Lord. If that is where you've led them, if that's the door that you're opening for them, I pray they would step through. And God, I pray that you would give us the boldness, that you would give us the faith, that you would give us the burden to go through the open doors you give us every day to share the gospel, to share the love of Jesus Christ, to invite people to come and worship with us at church. That's an open door that can change someone's eternal destiny. May we walk through that door this week. In Jesus' name we pray.